Welcome to the March of History, the very first bonus episode of the March of History. Bonus, well, I'll explain that in a second, but first and foremost, we have Brendan back on the podcast with us today. Glad to be back. Um, definitely interested in joining uh, the team again and talking through some stories and some different um, fascinating historical uh, aspects of ancient Rome and other areas. So definitely uh, excited to be here. Love it. Love it. And just so you guys know, we are recording this via Skype. Brandon is in New Jersey. I am in Spain. And so we've done a few trial runs on this and at times, the audio quality wasn't what we want it to be, but it's difficult when you're across the Atlantic from each other. So we are recording this today and hoping for the best in audio quality. If it's not, if it's if it's atrocious audio quality, this recording will probably never see the light of day. If it is acceptable, then we'll put it up for you guys. But we do apologize if there's any hiccups, kind of out of our hands. But as I was saying, this is kind of a bonus episode of the March of History, meaning that. It's not about Julius Caesar. We are not progressing the life of Julius Caesar. We are talking more about what's been happening over here in Spain with me and, and the move here since I really haven't talked much about that on the podcast since I figure a lot of people who tune into the podcast just want the straight history and don't really want to know about what's going on in my life, which I completely understand. So we're doing this as a bonus episode to tell you about what's going on in Spain and to explain kind of some of the history about the different cities I've gone to in Spain. And some of that does relate to Caesar. You know, one of the places I go to is Cadiz, which is ancient Gades, which is the capital of the province of further Spain where Caesar was governor of. So there's going to be lots of history in this episode, but also some things that aren't history. And we figured what better way to do it than to put it in the format of a conversation with Brendan and I talking to each other. Sounds great. Yeah, I've actually started reading a book recently um, called The Silk Road. It's all about the uh, just the trade networks and various networks throughout Europe and in the Middle East. And recently, it's been talking a lot about Spain, actually. And so, I'll be uh, yeah, I'll definitely have some uh, contributions uh, from the book to uh, to add to the conversation. Nice, very nice, very nice. And for those who are recent listeners to the podcast, and maybe you skipped the first. I don't know how many episodes, but maybe you've only been recent, listening to the most recent episodes. Brandon and I started doing the podcast together, and then with the move to Spain and Brandon getting a new job and his schedule shifting, the podcast became more of a solo project. I think the way we'll do it from here on out is probably most episodes will be solo just because of the time difference and because Brendan has his own busy schedule. But occasionally, we'll bring Brendan back in to talk about either a big episode or something like this, a bonus episode, and he will join us. Now, on to the actual podcast. So I am currently living in Huelva, Spain, if you don't remember that from previous episodes. I quit my corporate banking job in the U.S., and I came here to Spain to teach English not because I'm a, a passionate English teacher. I've never, really never taught in my life. It's more that it's a part-time job that allows me to focus on the podcast more and explore the history of Europe and put more of my time and energy into creating the podcast and hopefully potentially YouTube channel and, and whatever else comes down the line. Of course, travel and seeing the history was one of the goals in coming to Europe. And of course, coronavirus has put quite a hitch into that. Because 
that's one thing I think that you guys will find interesting is the whole world is going through this pandemic right now, right? With coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever you want to call it. And life is very different depending on where in the world you live. Well, I'm sitting here living in Spain and I'm sure a lot of people might be curious about what is life like there in Spain? So I can say that, Brendan, I don't know if it's this way in New Jersey, but you have to have a mask on in public here in Spain. Anywhere you go, you have to have a mask on. Is it the same for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I've i been going on some walks around the the neighborhood here where I'm living in, in Twin Rivers. And um, yeah, definitely I don't. I mean, certainly I have to have a mask if I want to go into a store, get something to eat or or any anywhere indoors, I have to have a mask. But outside, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say. You might see some people wearing them, but it's certainly not something that you're obligated to do. So, And so have you guys been seeing a, a lower rate of infection over there because of that, you think? That's a good question. I know that Spain's had a few surges because, I mean, the whole mask thing, it, it does make sense. And I'm not going to get into the politics of masks, but in Spain, the culture is a culture where people touch each other a lot. There's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of kissing. And so when people sit down at the bar, they all take their masks off to drink <laughs> and they all start hugging each start other and touching each other, each other oh you know, God. and it kind of defeats the purpose of the mask, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it sounds like they're wearing masks outdoors and not wearing them indoors. <laughs> well, a lot of the dining here in Andalusia in southern Spain is all outdoor. Even when it's cold out, people oh, just, okay. Okay. for whatever reason, like, no, like nobody wants to eat inside or, or sit inside. They want to be outside all the time, which makes the whole outdoor dining thing pretty easy. You know, I know that's an issue with the U.S. where they say some states say only outdoor dining. Spain... I don't think that they've ever decreed that, but here in Andalusia, people just prefer that anyway. And they have a climate for it. It doesn't rain much here. Yeah, yeah. Over here in the U.S., I've seen they, you know, since they, they don't necessarily already have the outdoor dining, but they've been building these constructs that are getting, um, you know, more and more elaborate outside, right outside the restaurant. But it's getting, at least in some pictures that I've seen, to the point where it's almost like it's indoors anyway. It's like they, they built like another uh, hut outside the restaurant. <laughs> it's felt that it's, it might as well be inside the restaurant. So it's sort of funny that way. Yeah, it kind of defeats the purpose too. That's funny. Yeah, as far as the numbers here in Spain, I don't know how it compares to the U.S. I do know that the lockdown restrictions here have been pretty extreme. So I say I haven't gotten to do as much travel as I would like, but that doesn't mean I haven't done any travel. So back in October, we were able to travel and I went to Cordoba which is an incredible city, and we'll tell you about that later in the podcast or later in this episode. During Then they kind of locked down the country because there was a huge wave of corona, and then they reopened for Christmas, and we were able to travel again. Then I went to Cadiz, which is that city I said that Caesar was governor from. I went to Malaga, to Sevilla, to Granada. So I've done lots of travel, but it's all been within Andalusia. That's the autonomous community that I'm in here in Spain. So we've been able to travel within Andalusia, which, thank goodness, has a ton of interesting cities and a ton of wild history. So it's not like I'm stuck in some backwater or anything. I mean, Welva itself is a bit of a backwater, but the rest of Andalusia is not. It's funny that you talk about backwaters in Spain because in the the book that I mentioned previously, that's what they're discussing is that for – I mean, a large portion of the medieval history of uh, 
of Spain, it was very much a backwater because it was so far away from the rich East over in, you know, the Levant, as they as they call it, or the uh, the Middle East, yeah, Iranian and uh, Persia, and so it, it really was kind of a backwater back then. And then uh, until everything changed when uh, Christopher Columbus discovered, or at least discovered in a practical sense for the for Western Europe, uh, the Americas, and then a lot of uh, wealth started being transported over to Spain and uh, kind of reversed their uh, their fortunes. Yeah, and the amount of treasure brought back by Spain from the Americas is just astounding. I mean, it's as if the U.S. in today's terms stumbled across, I don't know, like an asteroid or something that they could bring back to Earth with enough gold that it covered their GDP multiple times over, <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know the exact amount of gold that's being brought back, but I, I, off the top of my head, I remember reading figures that it was – multiples of their of their gdp at the time maybe i'm wrong on that i don't know but that seems to be what i remember but it made them fabulously rich not quite overnight but in historical terms it, it might as well be overnight right yeah yeah no i and it's it is always funny it's oftentimes they'll take spans of time that are like a whole an entire lifetime and in, when you're looking at history it seems like it's overnight but yeah no it is it is overnight compared to how long the time really is or the, the hundreds of years that we're looking at when we look at history. But, um, but yeah, in the, in the book that I was reading, it's called uh, The Silk Roads, by the way. Yeah, they were also describing the, the vast quantities of gold that were coming off of the shipments from the, from the New World. Like um, hundreds of these big pallets that just full of gold and silver. And um, it would, of course, enrich Spain. And then also the young uh, Spaniards that would grow up around the docks would see all this gold coming in. And it kind of inspired a, a new generation of... Um, perhaps conquistadors or explorers to try to um, go to the new world themselves and make their own riches, and uh, some of them pirates as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I've been thinking a lot recently because they are so into Columbus here in Spain, especially in this area of Spain that I'm in, that I've been doing some more reading and research on on Columbus and then the pirates of the Caribbean, not the movie, but you know the, the real actual historical pirates. And it is a fascinating era, and I've thought about maybe doing a podcast on one of those famous pirates in the future, you know, somebody that lived an interesting life, but maybe not as eventful as Caesar, so it wouldn't take, I don't know, 60, 70, whatever episodes it's going to take to get through Caesar's life, but you know, one that would be done in maybe 10, 15 episodes could be an idea for the future, I don't know. And even, I know, so even though they found all this gold and became mega rich in, in such a short period of time, they seem to have squandered a lot of it because they were they were known to be very rich, but weak. Buying buy nice cars and stuff. I don't know what they squandered it on, but they didn't like even. So I, I was doing research with some of these pirates, and, and they were saying that Spain was known to be extremely rich, but also weak and unable to protect itself from these pirates. And and you wonder well, if you find all that gold, you think you could you know train the best forces, hire the best people to train your troops. Or at least hire good mercenaries. So, it, it, for whatever reason, they seem to have gone into this golden age where they had this big Spanish empire. Then they lost pretty much all of it and went back to being a backwater to the point where, by, by the time of Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon saw Spain as this backwards, kind of superstitious area of Europe that was still medieval in their Catholic thinking and loved the Inquisition. 
And this is this, these are kind of the way Napoleon saw Spain at the time. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny how quickly they rose to superstardom with this massive Spanish empire and then fell back down to the original status of backwater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really uh, does resemble, you know, someone winning the lottery, how just like today you win the, uh, you know, some big state lottery and then, you know, the person ends up at, in some kind of uh, psychological, uh, they, de- they develop all sorts of psychological issues. They have family issues. Um, and oftentimes it seems they end up worse off than they were before. So it definitely uh, fits the model of, you know, they found some big, great treasure that they didn't really have to work for. They had to, uh, they had to take some risks and uh, definitely, I mean, they discovered the new world. But after that, though, it was just kind of a... Uh, a big uh, boon for them and easy, easy money. So, um, yeah, yeah. it's true. Uh, it's, it's not like they had some superior organization or some culture that was meant to make them great or anything like that. I mean, they, they really just got lucky. And, you know, if you just get lucky, if that luck stops, well, everything was riding on you being lucky and, and, and not some skill, not some culture that you had, not some, you know, like they didn't have institutional knowledge and institutional culture that had led them to greatness. They had the fact that they had stubbed their toe on a ton of gold in the New World, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but um, what's interesting is that um, because it is like a whole nation or whatever you know kingdom that is getting lucky, it's a much bigger entity, not a single person. The good part may last like several generations, and so to the people that are living in those generations, it's that's all they see. So it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, while it is a short lived thing for people that it stretched their entire lifespan for, you know, it wasn't so short term for them. So that for all they knew, they're on the top and they were going to stay there. This is true. This is definitely true. Which which I think all this talk about the people that went to the new world is, is a good place to segue into telling you about the city that I'm actually in, because a lot of those people came from this area that I'm in. So, I am living and working in a city called, or at least living in a city called Huelva. That's H-U-E-L-V-A. And it's not a tourist town and it doesn't even have an airport. So it is a bit of a backwater in Spain. But on the positives, it is authentically Andalusian, authentically Spanish, meaning that because there's not a lot of tourists, because there's no airport, this is not a tourist trap where things, are, you know, where you see signs in English and everybody speaks English. I mean, this is like real authentic Spain, right? Uh, all the buildings are very Spanish. There's not a lot of influence from, or you would say maybe not as much influence from the outside world as you would find in a Madrid or a Barcelona, right? Sure, yeah. And another pro is that it's it's right next to the beach, which is very cool for me because I can go to the beach all the time here. And it also has lots of nature. I, I was talking to a Spaniard that was telling me that because I, I told him about the U.S. that yeah we don't have a lot of the history or we don't have any of the history you know that Europe has you know we have a small fraction in comparison to them but what we do have is beautiful nature and he compared Welva to the U.S. and that he goes yeah we're, we're kind of similar in that we don't have the incredible history that say Seville or Granada or a city like that has but Welva is surrounded by natural parks and natural beaches. And has lots of beautiful marshes. So he, he thought that Welva was kind of similar to the U.S. That was kind of a unique perspective. But the reason I brought up 
why this is a good transition to go from talking about Columbus and, you know, the Spaniards finding the new world in quotes finding to talk about Welva is because Christopher Columbus's first voyage that he left on to go to the new world left out of Palos de la Frontera, which is a, a small pueblo right next to Welva. And it's actually the pueblo where I work in Palos. That's the school I teach at is in Palos. So one of the ships was built there in Palos and a lot of the crew came from this area of Spain, which makes them extremely proud of this, right? They're all very proud of Christopher Columbus. There are Columbus statues everywhere. My school is named after one or it's called Hermanos Pinzon. So the Pinzon brothers were two brothers that accompanied Columbus on his voyage and they were big benefactors. And I believe they owned at least one of the ships. So the school is named after that. You see statues of Columbus everywhere. And I know that there are culture wars about Columbus in the U.S. as to whether he was, I think as, as Tony Soprano said, an Italian-American hero or whether he was a monster that committed acts of genocide. In Here in Spain, or at least this part of Spain, there seems to be no confusion on that whatsoever. Christopher Colon, as they call him, or Cristobal Colon, because they don't say Columbus, they say Colon was a national hero and a treasure and discovered the new world and and everybody here loves them. It, it's it's so unique because I think so many times people in the US, whatever side of the issue they're on, get lost in US politics as if it's the entire world and they forget that there are very different opinions in a lot of these debates around the world, you know, ones that we are unaware of. And and Columbus is just one of those, but I just thought it was interesting how different their perspective is. In fact, they don't even seem to know a lot of times that Columbus is even a controversial figure. It's, it's not even like they say, oh, yeah, we know in the U.S. you guys don't like him or he's controversial. They seem to almost be naively believe that everybody believes that Columbus is a great guy. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that really makes you think. I mean, I mean, so, yeah, now you're aware that, you know, there are groups of people that think that or that have no idea about different perspectives of Columbus. But I mean, how would all the things that we, we might not be aware of? That's interesting to think about. But, but yeah, Columbus uh, definitely either way sounds like a uh, seems like a very fascinating guy, um, whether you call him good or bad. I know one thing that I found that was uh, that I, I didn't know about until recently was that Columbus initially what uh, part of what spurred his ambition to uh, do all these great trips was he had the goal of taking back Jerusalem. Just like the the Crusades, really? Yeah, I didn't know that, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so he thought if he could find a, um, or, or first off, just a, a bit more background, he was surprised. Like, you know, what's what's everyone doing? Everyone here calls themselves themselves Christians and you know believes in God and claims to uh, support all this stuff. But then you know Jerusalem is uh, being controlled by um, you know Arabs in the Middle East and and Muslims, and you know how come we're not charging in there and and taking it back over? And then so he thought that if they could find a, a route to the to the Indies and they'd be able to have the riches to fund a, I guess, a holy war to uh, go into the Levant, that area, and take over Jerusalem. So um, Interesting. I, I didn't know he had some larger scheme and, and, and plan like that beyond finding the riches. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd never heard about that before until um, – just yesterday, I think. Wow. So yeah, that it is cool to to 
I've thought about doing a, a podcast on Columbus and doing his biography. It would be one where obviously we'd have to tread carefully because <laughs> in the U.S. he is such a, a hot topic issue. But I've also thought about a lot of these crew members who came with Columbus. Columbus himself, if you don't know, is Italian, even though he sailed under the Spanish flag and for the Spanish monarchs. But all, or at least a lot of his crew members came from this area of Spain. And potentially, I mean, the people I teach today, the kids and their parents could be relatives of these people that went to the New World. You know, if one brother stayed in Palos and one went to the New World. And one thing that's never said here in Palos, but I often wonder, is that, you know, all these atrocities that were committed under these conquistadors and under... Columbus, well, I mean, a lot of these men committing these atrocities had to be men from this area, right? <laughs> and I wonder if it was something about the culture at the time that made them more ruthless, or if the entire world was just a more ruthless place back then. It's probably more likely, but it's just something that I've often thought about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, it seems, you know, from like the 1400s, you know, and before that, it was definitely a very uh, ruthless uh, world where, uh, where life was definitely a lot cheaper than it is today. Yeah, yeah, a lot cheaper. And, and if memory serves right, I think a lot of the guys that went on the voyage with Columbus didn't have much to lose because they were second sons or third sons or fourth sons, which meant that the oldest son got the inheritance. And so if you were a second son or somebody, you know, third son, fourth son, whatever it was, if you weren't the firstborn, well, you had to take greater risks in order to try to find some kind of rewards that would allow you to live a good life because you are not going to have the family property handed to you. So, you know, it was these kind of guys. I think it was the same for the Crusades, too. A lot of those guys were second sons or, or beyond because they just were people that were more likely to be risk takers because they knew if they were going to get somewhere in life, they had to take risks versus the oldest son had a lot of things handed to them and a lot of responsibilities handed to them, but they weren't going to just go off the risk at all because they had something to lose. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, if, you know, if the, uh, the downsides minimize like that, then, and you know, the, yeah, people marketing, uh, you know, how great the riches are in the East and you might as well just up and head over there and see what you can do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which we've talked a few times now about Andalusia and how I'm there. And, and if you don't know anything about Spain, that's probably a term that's going over your head. So let me, let me explain that one for you as well. And then that'll lead us into talk of the, the Andalusian history tour I went to. So Spain, even though we think of it in the U.S., or at least I thought of it in the U.S. before I came here and before I had gone on vacations here, is that you know we think of it as one united country that speaks Spanish. And you think of Spanish culture as being out in the sun, dancing flamenco, drinking sangria, being very outgoing, maybe dark hair, dark eyes. Now, 90% of these stereotypes that we think of Spain are not actually all of Spain. All these stereotypes come from one region, the region of Andalusia, which is a, a large region in the south of Spain. But the rest of Spain has very different cultures and at times different languages. There are actually 17, they call them autonomous communities in Spain. And Andalusia is just one of them. And some of these autonomous communities, like, say, Catalonia, where Barcelona is, speak a different language. They speak Catalan. I mean, they speak Spanish too, but they also speak Catalan. 
there's so these various different autonomous regions are like they have separate cultures, they have separate languages, they have separate cuisines, they have separate histories. And so this is, you know, each one of them, as I understand it, has a separate agreement with the central government, which is why they're called autonomous communities, as to what they can decide and how much autonomy they can have, et cetera, et cetera. So Spain really is a, it's a very divided country. It's, it's not what we think of as just this one united entity. It's, it's 17 different entities with 17 different histories and different languages and cuisines and et cetera, et cetera. But all of the stereotypes or most of the stereotypes that we think of when we think of Spain all come from the region that I'm, that I'm in, in, in Andalusia, which was the region, the kind of the, the heartland of the Muslims in Spain as well. So it has all the cool Muslim history here. Yeah, you would think that it would have more of a um, – yeah, you don't, you don't think of uh, you know, the Muslim aspect of it when you think of that area of what – you know, which makes up what we stereotypically think of as, as being Spain. But yeah, that's interesting that you know, that's uh, kind of weighed over the, the same area. It's true because Spain is a extremely proudly Catholic nation or historically has been so. Like much of Europe, they're nowhere near as Catholic as they used to be. But they still, you know, in Andalusia especially, they still embrace all those traditions. For example, I just came before this podcast. I was out with uh, a Spanish friend and he was giving me a tour of the different churches in Huelva. And right now it's Semana Santa, which is it means Holy Week, basically kind of be. Today is Palm Sunday that we're recording this. So all the churches open their doors and they all have these beautiful life-size figures of the Virgin Mary and of Jesus pulling the cross on these giant golden and silver plated platforms. I mean, not even plated. It's like solid silver and gold. It's incredible. And the Virgin Mary has like this giant gold crown. I'm going to put pictures up of it on the Instagram and you can go check that out if you want. But you can go into these churches and see all this. And typically in Andalusia, which is more religious than the rest of Spain, carry all of these Virgin Marys day after day. Sometimes multiple churches will go in a single day. Some go at night and they're all candlelit. And they have a big orchestra that plays as they march through the streets carrying these Virgin Marys. And, and they carry them on these giant like litters, basically, um, like with basically poles that go out from the front and out in the back. And they'll have like 20 guys underneath carrying this on their shoulders and somebody there to guide them. And they march the street as these bands play these very solemn music. And it's all lit by candles. It's an incredible atmosphere. Unfortunately, like so many things, they're all canceled this year because of Corona. All of these processions, which is one of the big reasons I wanted to come to Andalusia and, and live here for a while, was to see these processions, and they're all canceled this year because of Corona. But Spain, it's I guess what I was getting at is it's very proudly Catholic, and historically has been so. And so the guy that I was with, he says he himself is not really a believer at all in, in religion, but he still loves the traditions of Spain, and many of the traditions of Spain are these Catholic traditions like this. So it, it's weird because we don't really think of Spain as being anything but Catholic then in a historical sense, but that's not true. Much of Spain was ruled by different Islamic empires for 700, 800 years almost. That's an enormous length of time, right? I mean, think about if the if the, the U.S. is what, 250 plus some change years old, maybe, is that right, give or take? 
Yeah, sounds about right. You know, if if we disappear tomorrow, that would be not even half the time that Spain was under Muslim rule. You know, and it, it somehow it's been almost like a forgotten period, not a forgotten period, because there's, there's tons of inf- information on it. But I, I think that with Spain retaking you know, the Reconquista, in quotes, because, you know, I don't know that you can really call it a reconquering. It's probably more of a conquest of Spain that Ferdinand and Isabella did basically to retake Spain from the Muslims. After that, you know, the Spanish Inquisition was started and all that history that, you know, Muslim rule for all those hundreds of years was meant to be st- like they wanted to keep that quiet. Right. They didn't want to advertise that they were Spanish. So they are Christian and they want to forget about this this humiliating past they had of, of being ruled by people who were not Christian, right? So maybe it, while there's tons of information on that history out there, it really hasn't been advertised. So until you dig into Spanish history, it's kind of something that kind of surprises you when you first start to learn about Spanish history, when you find out that it was ruled by different Muslim empires for near 800 years. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely surprising. And yeah, the, the vast amounts of time that, you know, it's hard to even really think about. Yeah, it is like wild that it's not uh, more in the front of our minds when we think of Spain. But um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, in a much uh, smaller way, you know, to some extent here in the U.S., we have a similar case um, with much of the land used to having been uh, owned by uh, France and, and Spain itself, you know, with the Louisiana Purchase and you know, the Spanish areas, you know, Texas and California and much of it was owned by other, by other areas. But, but yeah, it was sort of different. It was before there was really a lot of people there and there wasn't much uh, civilization built up, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we still kind of think of it as being very American, not, you know, at all any kind of affiliation with other countries. And if anything, identifying still with like more Britain than any other uh, European country. Yeah, yeah. And it's significantly harder to ignore here, too, the the Muslim past in Andalusia, because almost all of their massive and beautiful palaces and castles and structures, at least the the most grand ones, are all built by different Islamic empires. And during its time in Spain, these, I mean, I've heard them called the Moors, but I've heard that's maybe a derogatory term, but then I still see it everywhere, so I don't know if it is or not. Basically, historically, these Muslims that came from North Africa and came from the Middle East that conquered Spain and created an empire there that changed hands through different Muslim rulers different, you know, throughout the ages, because 700 years is a long time, were historically called the Moors. Today, I have heard rumor that maybe that's a derogatory term and we shouldn't call them that, but then I still see it everywhere, so I don't know if it's derogatory or not. So, you know, that's why I don't really know how to refer to them. And I don't know enough about the history to give the actual dynasty names, et cetera, et cetera. Where was I going with that? Let's talk myself into a circle. Oh, it's a bit harder to ignore because Muslim Spain was a center for learning and for science and for mathematics and for architecture in Europe, it was the, it was the hub. You know, in Europe during the M- Middle Ages, when people in the UK, no offense to them, were you know rolling in their own feces, people in Spain were doing incredible amounts of math and science and poetry. They were reading the classics, and and if you had people that were smart in your country and you wanted to get them a great education, 
you would send them to the Islamic courts in Spain. That was the center of learning in Europe. Yeah, no, it, it is uh, amazing the contrast between the at this, I guess, from like the 600s to the uh, 900s, you know, around that area, the contrast between the Islamic empires and the or empire empires in Europe. There's one quote that I read that was kind of funny. Um, it said, while the, uh, you know, some famous Muslim scholars in Baghdad were studying, you know, the great works of Aristotle and, and uh, Socrates and, the, you know, these old Greek literatures, uh, Charlemagne was uh, dabbling with uh, learning how to write his name. <laughs> <laughs> Roasted. <Yeah. laughs> Which I think is, I think is pretty accurate. I think I remember seeing he, he was illiterate. So um, I, you know, there's definitely, I mean, it's a fact that, you know, it's true. Yeah, and, and the Muslims in Spain were remarkably tolerant. They, I mean, they had all sorts, so they had protections for Christians and for Jews, and they re really didn't care what your religion was. You could believe whatever you want. In fact, they had this clever system that, I mean, you could never get away with it today, but clever for the Middle Ages where they would charge, the only thing that you would have to pay for being a Christian or for being a Jew was an extra tax, basically, for not being a Muslim. And, you know, I know people would scream bloody murder about that in the U.S. today if they ever imposed some kind of tax for not being Christian and with good reason. But in the Middle Ages, it served a good, a good double purpose in that it incentivized the local governors to protect these religious minorities because they were a source of income to the government. Right. So far from encouraging imams of renown who could convert the local Christians and local Jews into Islam and to, you know, convert them into your your own religion of Islam, rather than encouraging these people to come into your territory and perform conversions, you would actively shoot them away and say, no, 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 get out of here to these great imams and great preachers because you don't want these Christians to be converted because you want that tax money, right? You want to protect them and their religion because that's that's a good source of revenue for you. So it's this, it's this weird system that at first glance you'd be like, oh, that's horrible. They charge them extra for – being a far for being a different religion than what the government is, but the reality is it incentivized the go governors to protect the religious minority, and this in a time where the Christians would just, I mean, torture people into converting into Christianity or just seize all your assets or have you killed for being a Muslim. I mean, the Christians were brutal. The Spanish Inquisition was brutal. So in comparison, this Islamic empire in Spain was just unbelievably tolerant. Yeah, no, and, and uh, from what I was reading, I mean, not only were they tolerant when, at least when Islam first came around, they um, they saw the uh, Christians as like fellow, uh, I mean, they, they didn't see them as the same as themselves, but they saw them at least as believing in the same God as they did and much better than any, you know, pagan uh, people or any other you know, non-monotheistic uh, people. And so they, they even, to some extent, saw them as allies versus uh, other, certainly like minority uh, Christian groups in, I think, uh, the Middle East that are maybe at odds with the main Christian church in um, Constantinople. They'd kind of take sides with them and uh, treat them very nice. Obviously, there's, you know, a conflict of interest there. Um, they want to have more people on their side to fight against the, the Byzantines. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they were, they didn't care so much about converting you or, you know, you not believing the same exact things that they did. It's 
true. And if memory serves right, I think from what you're saying, they would call Christians and Jews, I think the translation was people of the book. And this is all from the top of my head. So if I have some of the details wrong, I do apologize. But I think the idea was that they don't ha- like from the Muslim perspective, these people don't have all the details right, but they do read the Old Testament. They do read the New Testament, which are all books that the Muslim religion, as I understand it, reads as well. So they are not to be treated like pagans, like you said. They are people of the book, a separate category, which are not quite up to Muslim standards, but are not pagans either. But that brings us to talk about the Andalusian history tour I took here in Spain, because, like I said, so uh, I was hoping to travel all over Europe. Unfortunately, that's not been possible, but I haven't been able to travel within Andalusia. And unfortunately for me, like I said earlier in, the, in this episode, Andalusia has many grand cities for history to travel and see. So the first one I'm going to tell you about is a city called Cordoba. So Cordoba was originally, well, I believe it was originally a Roman city, but I could be wrong about that. But it, it, it has incredible history in it. And the reason why... I went there is because they typically have a patio festival each year, which is the patios in Cordoba are like these old Islamic patios, which are really kind of a central area of a house that's open to the elements. And so, you know, if you climbed onto the roof, you could hop down into the central courtyard. Does that make sense? If the building's a square, it's an open air courtyard. Yeah. Yep. And so they, they display all these incredible flowers and plants and I mean, it must be an enormous amount of work to do this, but it's been going on for huge, like for, I mean, maybe better part of a century at least. And the only thing that's ever delayed it or postponed it or caused it to be canceled has been pandemics and world wars. <laughs> so we, we happen to be in the latter or in the former, I'm sorry, in, in a pandemic. So typically it happens in May. It was rescheduled for October of this year. So I was like, oh, man, let's go check that out. So I went to Cordoba in October, explored it, saw the patios. And fun fact about the patios that a local Spaniard told me was that there is at least a, you know, this is hearsay, right? This is what somebody told me. I haven't been able to verify this. But he was telling me that when they've actually dug up some of these courtyards, these patios in Cordoba, they have found the skeletons of horses and of men from Napoleon's French army, from the Grand Armée, which he said the reason why is that the daughters of local Cordoba families would flirt with the soldiers, with the officers, would lure them back to their house, basically tricking the guy into thinking that she wants to have sex with him, and then he would get back there and there'd be guys waiting with knives who would kill him. And then they would bury him inside the courtyard. And if the guy came with a horse, you can't just leave the horse there. So you, you kill the horse and bury that, too. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so this what kind of weird, dark this twist crazy. to these flower patios. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what, that was when uh, Napoleon was trying to, uh, as he said, liberate Spain? Yes, liberate Spain from superstition and from the Inquisition. <laughs> or as, as the Spanish would say... Uh, trying to take over and conquer Spain. And in fact, they call Joseph Bonaparte, who eventually flees and, and settled in Bordentown, New Jersey, and, and had a mansion in Bordentown, New Jersey, fun fact. But he was also made king of Spain by Napoleon, and they call him here Pepe Le... Something along the lines of Pepe Le Bot... 
Papa, or I don't know, my Spanish is terrible. You know, I'm learning as I go here. But they call him like basically Pepe of the bottle, which basically meant that he was an alcoholic. You know, they think of Joseph Bonaparte as being this absolute goober who was an alcoholic, Pepe of the bottle, <laughs> which I don't think any of which is true, but it's still a pervasive belief among many Spaniards I've met. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very familiar to the stuff you know you say today about like uh, this or that politician, like calling them <laughs> some slander that you know, there may be no base to the truth to it at all. There's some grain of truth either way. It's it's funny to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and especially when there are a foreign dictator king imposed upon you, right? You know, yeah. you're, you're not going to be very kind to them. But Cordoba, it, I mean, it's an amazing city. So part of what we're doing with this episode is if you have any interest in traveling and seeing history when all this pandemic is done and and you're looking for places to go and, and trying to figure out a plan of what would be a good place to see, I'm going to tell you about some like, amazing cities for history, for artwork, for architecture here, and for – I mean, they're Spanish. They have great nightlife too. So these are definitely some places you can go to. I've been lucky that I, I'm here as a teacher, so I'm here on a on a visa, so I've been able to travel to Spain without COVID restrictions getting in the way. But once all this corona is done with, and, and hopefully soon, ho- hopefully you, you can come and, and take a trip and, and see some of this stuff yourself if you're inspired by what, what I say. But anyway, Cordoba has an incredible old Roman bridge that dates back to the first century AD, which talk about an old bridge, right? First century AD. But, I mean, of course, like anything in Europe, it's been reconstructed multiple times, uh, most notably in the 8th century by the Moors, you know, the Islamic rulers that ruled at the time. And it basically stretches across this river, and at the end of it, on the other side of the river, from the far side from where the main city is, is like a small castle tower called the Kalahora Tower, a beautiful castle. So, I mean, Cordoba's got everything you could, you could hope for, Roman bridges, castles. And that's just the beginning because the, the big draw in Cordoba is La Mesquita. And what that means is like the mosque or the Grand Mosque. And the Mesquita is the only church cathedral in the world, meaning that when the Christians conquered the city from the Muslims, they found this incredible, beautiful La Mesquita mosque in the center of Cordoba. And I'm sure you've all seen pictures of it, even if you didn't know what you're seeing pictures of. It is the mosque with kind of the endless white arches with red brick kind of stripes through the top of it. And if you go on my Instagram, you can see plenty of pictures of it. I mean, the March of History's Instagram, that is. But they found this incredible mosque and they thought, oh my God, this is so gorgeous, so beautiful. And it's got all sorts of gold writing on, on the walls and it's, it's amazing. But they thought, well, we, we can't destroy this mosque. But we can't have some superior architecture to the Muslim or to the Islamic religion here in a Christian city now. So what they did is they just dropped a cathedral right into the center of this giant mosque. And so the center of the mosque suddenly switches from this kind of austere, endless arches that you know the ceiling is not too high it's not gaudy it's very simple but very solemn and and beautiful to suddenly this gaudy christian cathedral with a super high ceiling and and tons of marble and tons of glit and glamour and gold and carved wooden chairs and mahogany for the priests and so it's this wild juxtaposition to see the mosque and the cathedral right next to each other 
or I mean, it's the same building. You can you can walk and stand between the two and look to your left and see the cathedral and look to your right and see the mosque. Yeah, yeah, that was a great uh, description of it, and I I haven't seen it myself, but um, I can imagine that if the Spanish were willing to you know chase out every single uh, Muslim from Spain, but you know when they stopped and saw this uh, the uh, mesquita. They couldn't bring themselves to to destroy that, to level that, and they had to keep that. It must have, uh, it must truly be magnificent. It is, it is, and it's 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 amazing the level of sophistication that they had during the the dark ages of Europe. Right, <laughs> they, they built this during the Muslims were in Spain from I don't know the six hundreds until all, all the way up until I think Granada was was kicked out and sometime in the fourteen hundreds in the late fourteen hundreds. I mean, that's a huge period of time where Europe was in, in dire straits and in the Dark Ages, and this Muslim empire in Spain was building buildings like that, right? <laughs> but it, it's also amazing because it it has a, a giant courtyard, too, filled with orange trees and, and a beautiful bell tower, which would have been a minaret back in the day, I think. And that's what the Christians would always do. They would turn the minaret into a bell tower, which was much more Christian and much more acceptable to them. But the big courtyard with the orange trees, which a lot of these Andalusian cathedrals have, were originally, you know, they were all originally Muslim mosques. And this would be the area where all the Muslims would take off their shoes and line them up in this courtyard and then go in barefoot into the mosque to say their prayers. And there's rumor, at least I've heard that, I've even had a tour guide in Cordoba tell me that La Mesquita was originally a Roman temple before it was either a church or a mosque. But you know, in, in doing research, I, I read that that maybe has been disproved now and that they think it was actually a Visigoth church before it was even a mosque. So just layers on layers of history. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I'm just thinking about how, um, yeah, how amazing it is, like how quickly uh, Christianity just sprung up and spread throughout all of Europe. But yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of uh, layers uh, of... Um, even, I mean, yeah, of course, as you mentioned, uh, between Christianity and Islam, but uh, Christianity and Christianity itself uh, with the Visigoths there. Yeah, yeah. And there, I mean, there's, that's one of the reasons I love Spain is there's so much history here. There is the conquistador type history. There's the Inquisition. There's all the Christian and Catholic history here. There is, you know, the age of exploration that all happened from Spain and, and at least leaving from Spain in the, in the Spanish colonies. There is Islamic history. There is tons of Roman history. There is Visigothic history. There is Phoenician history. There is Carthaginian history. Spain has almost everything you could you'd possibly want as far as history. Napoleonic history, Napoleon fought battles in Spain. It's incredible. Yeah, it, it surprises me that or at least I, I wonder what it is that caused them to kind of get a reputation and as a backwater and to kind of, um, you know, become maybe not quite as uh, civilized as other parts of Europe when they're, they're established so much sooner than much of uh, Northern Europe, you know, all the way back with Carthage and, and Rome and, and so on. And you would think that, you know, with all that time of being under, um, civilized rule that they would be you know more organized and less uh, considered less backwards than northern europe i guess that's not always the way it works 
Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know the answer to that, but it's a great question. I have to do some research into that. You know, how, how are you ruled by these advanced empires for 700 years and none of that rubs off on you? Right? <laughs> it's kind of like the, the, the more blunt way to put it, right? You would think yeah. that even once these, even once the Christians retook these cities, that all that infrastructure and all that institutional knowledge would stay, but maybe not. Maybe if a lot of those smart scientists, a lot of those mathematicians and architects and civil servants were all Islamic and didn't feel comfortable staying with these Christians who were just killing people, right, and, and starting the Catholic Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, that maybe a lot of that talent fled, and you had, you know, the skeletons of this great civilization, meaning their buildings, but none of the arteries that made it work. Yeah. That's just you know, me guessing. I don't know. Yeah. I was reading that um, even during, like, the, uh, I guess, literal golden age with all the gold coming in from the New World, when Spain was kind of um, dominating the, the rest of uh, Europe, a lot of some accounts from uh, nor, uh, northern Europeans would still say, like, yeah, they have all this, these riches and gold and stuff, but they're still, you know, just as uncivilized and you know, rude and obnoxious as as they always were. <laughs> <laughs> if you go visit there, yeah, I mean, they they just become arrogant and you know ha, are, are flaunting all this gold, but they're still not not at all any more organized or civilized. The same people. Interesting, interesting. I didn't know that, huh? The final thing, I mean, there's a lot of things to see in, in Cordoba, but the final, the final big thing is the Alcazar they have there, which is the, I believe, Arabic word for castle. So it's the Alcazar of the Christian monarchs, or Alcazar de los Reyes Cristianos. And this, this is a, it's an amazing castle with amazing gardens built on an existing Islamic structure back in 1328. So uh, another cool sight to see. So... Cordoba really has it all, and, and the whole city is a series of whitewashed, narrow, winding streets that are made very narrow to keep you out of the sun because Cordoba is extremely hot in the summertime, and it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful city. But moving on from there, because we, we got a lot of cities to talk about, the other one, so that was back in October, and then come December, January, I, I got to go on another trip because the borders reopened again, or at least we were allowed to leave the province of Huelva and travel Andalusia because Huelva is both the name of the city, that's the biggest city in the province of Huelva, and the name of the province itself. That's the way that all everything works in Spain. So there is the province of Cordoba and the city of Cordoba. There is the province of Cadiz and the city of Cadiz, right? But in, in December we did is I, I went from Huelva to Sevilla, but Sevilla was just kind of like a, a stop through. Not that it's not a city worth seeing itself. It's just that, you know, I plan to see that at a different time and, and have seen it in the past, but it, it's Sevilla is a big hub or in English we call it Seville, but in Spanish call it Sevilla. Uh, it's a big transport hub. So I was able to, you know, go there uh, and then catch a bus from there to Cadiz, which is where Caesar was governor of, Way back in ancient Rome, it was called Gades back then. It is in the southern coast of Spain, you know, kind of on that very southern almost peninsula that Spain has near, kind of near Gibraltar, and also near to Jerez de la Frontera, where they make sherry. And Cadiz is a, is a fascinating city because it's it's one of the oldest, if not the single oldest, continuously inhabited city in Western Europe. 
It was founded by Phoenicians some 3,100 years ago. That's an incredible you know, age for, for a city, right? Yeah, yeah. Hard to even think about. Yeah, we think about cities in the U.S. being old. Oh, it's a few hundred years old. No, this city is a few thousand years old. 3,100 years. It's just mind-boggling. And it, it's a city on a narrow strip of land that's jutting out from the mainland. And it makes it unique in that it is kind of just this strip of land. So so property is at a premium there because you can't really build any more than what, what they already have on, on this narrow strip. So it, it's quite a unique city. And it actually it looks a lot like Havana, Cuba, apparently. Not that I've been to Havana, but apparently it looks enough like Havana that Die Another Day, the James Bond movie, when they go to Cuba, was actually filmed in Caddies instead of in Havana because it looks enough like Havana. Hmm. And this is also the city that Caesar saw the statue of Alexander the Great in and became depressed and put out because he realized how little he'd accomplished at his age when at the same age Alexander had done great deeds, fought great battles, and, and conquered most of the known world at the time. Uh, that was in that was in this city in Cadiz. Oh, really? That story does always stick out in my mind. It's definitely a. Uh, I get how he could be, uh, you know, depressed by that. You see this, um, basically, the person that you're trying to emulate and probably surpass. Uh, uh, it, it all of a sudden it dawns on you that it's already too late <laughs> to to, uh, to surpass and never mind, you know, meet his accomplishments because you've gotten to a certain age. But I mean. Today, I'd say more people know Caesar than uh, Alexander. I would say so as well. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really cool. I mean, you really are walking in the footsteps of Julius Caesar. The, another notable thing that happened in Cadiz is this is where Hannibal, Hannibal Barca, that brought Rome to its knees, this is where Hannibal came to sacrifice before marching across the Alps and to attack Rome. So Hannibal came to a temple in Cadiz to sacrifice before leaving. And that temple is actually a famous temple. It's not there anymore. It's possible the ruins are there. I'm not sure. If, if so, I didn't see them myself. But it's this temple to Melkart or Melk. I don't know if that's if I'm saying that right. But Melkart, which is like a Phoenician god, and Hercules. I don't know if it converted at one point or if the two became conflated with each other. You know, a lot of these Mediterranean gods would kind of change names with cultures but it's this temple to Melkart and Melkart and Hercules and I think that's where Hannibal went to sacrifice before crossing the Alps yeah I remember hearing uh, something about the, the mythology of that area or not, I don't know specifically that area but when you say Hercules I know that um what was it, the rock of Gibraltar and some other rock on the the African side of the strait uh, Gibraltar there like in mythology, Greek mythology is supposed to be the, the two pillars holding up the, uh, I don't know if it's like a gate to the other, you know, some other world or the gate to this world or something like that. And, and Hercules, what did he slay some, like, uh, some monsters or something in that area? I, I don't know the full story, but some kind of, um, yeah, there, there is something with that. I remember reading about the pillars of Hercules being somewhere in the area of Cadiz. Hercules got around, man. Uh, when I was in Barcelona, they also said that, Hercules founded Barcelona. <laughs> they said when he when he was doing his twelve labors, he climbed to the top of this one hill and he saw, and he looked at the harbor and said, "Oh, it would be a good city here." And he made Barcelona. 
Wow, yeah, I heard you also founded uh, New York. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. No, it's interesting. If you ever look at like the maps of where did Hercules' 12 labors happen or supposedly happen or, or where did Odysseus's voyage happen? I mean, these guys weren't just in the Aegean Sea ho- island hopping. They would be in, sometimes in Sicily, sometimes over in Spain. It, it's pretty crazy to think that way back then people were traveling all around. Uh, of course, you can argue as to whether Hercules and Odysseus were ever really people, but the fact that the people telling the stories even knew of these areas to talk about them is pretty crazy. Yeah, no, and I and I was just thinking about this like recently, how incredible it is. And the time period that I was reading about was much later than you know back in ancient Greece, but um, yeah, even in like the 1200s or so, with Marco Polo, I was looking at the the route he took all throughout um East Asia, not just even like with the Mongols, but also all along the coast of China, down to India, down to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, um, and then finally, you know, all to the Pacific Ocean around taking the sea route all the way back to Venice. But it's amazing the the distances that these people traveled back then in a time period when, um, this is just an example of one, like, uh, story that I've heard is that it was a, a widely believed, uh, apparently a widely believed thing back then that there are these, um, people called the the Cenocephaly that were <laughs> dog-headed people. <laughs> it was, I've heard you know, this. Yeah. knowledge that these people existed, you know, somewhere throughout, you know, always I'm sure someplace that was beyond the frontier and even bleed into the point where they'd have uh, bishops debating, you know, are these Cenocephaly, um, do they have souls or not? Because, you know, if they do have souls, <laughs> we have to convert them. <laughs> and if they don't, then we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> so, and so to to live in an age where people believe that, that where they have such little uh, knowledge of the world that they would believe something like that, but still travel so far, is just kind of astounding. Yeah, when, when you think about people believing stuff like that, you, you got to <laughs> imagine it. It's just like it's a BS or like a bullshitter's paradise, right? I mean, oh, if you're yeah. somebody who's got a talent for talking and a talent for just telling whoppers and lies all the time – I mean, you, you found your paradise back then because you can pretty much convince anybody of anything. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, yeah, if you were a good talker and a good uh, bullshitter back then, you probably were literally good at things. Like you probably made it, you know, made it in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you got people believing in, in dog-headed people already and, and debating whether they have souls or not and whether they need to be worried about, I mean, at that point, what, what's off the table? <laughs> you know, no, nothing is too crazy to bring up. <laughs> yeah, no. We should do a podcast on that. I would love to do, in addition to the biographies, maybe like bonus episodes about like little weird areas of history like that that people don't really know about, like the, these dog-headed people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that would be fascinating. And, and the thing about – and specifically the dog-headed people has caught my interest because it, it's not even just one time period throughout history. It's it's throughout all of history that it's like a recurring theme like – and not even like necessarily different groups of people, but the same people <laughs> oftentimes. And like a lot of times it'd be rumored, oh, they're in Egypt or not, no, not Egypt, uh, India. And uh, there'd be detailed accounts of uh, not just like, oh, they're over there. I, you know, I heard from someone else, but like firsthand accounts of like, you know, what their behaviors are, how they act, what they, what they like to eat. <laughs> and so it's just, <laughs> and, and throughout like from ancient times all the way to medieval times, just a recurring theme of, the, of these dog-headed people that, you know, if you lived in that time, of course you would believe it. You know, everyone always talks, you know, everyone's been 
you know, depicting them and talking about them for centuries. So, I mean, man, I mean, I can tell you in our times, I believed in them when I was a kid because of Sesame Street. <laughs> they always had those dog headed people, you know, picking oh, really? out fruits and stuff. Remember that? No, I don't even remember that. Huh. Oh, yeah, you can Google it. It's it's always like a Weimaraner. And apparently, it's like one photographer that would always do it because I've read about it later in life now. But they would have basically a dog's head through a t shirt or through some kind of jacket or something, and then human arms coming out from the jacket. And they would just be like cutting up a meal and like feeding the dog, but it would make it look from the camera's point of view uh, like yeah, this dog yeah. has human hands and a body and is just cutting up a meal and eating. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember it from Sesame Street, but I do. I have seen more recent videos on social media of, of people doing that with, with their dogs and the, and the hands to the shirt. It looks like they're you know doing a very anthropomorphic uh, type of types of things. Yeah, and the Sesame Street one looks so much more realistic than these ones I've seen on Instagram. I mean, it it really sent my head for a loop as a kid because I, I didn't understand. Like, like they, it's not like they ever introduced that this was a trick and like a joke or anything. They just kind of played this video for you and, and left you to think on it <laughs> with with nobody to explain it to you. Yeah, no, I mean the mind really is like an open palette until um. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how it is. That at some point we learn to uh, tell the difference between what's true and what's not. I mean, maybe, I mean, to a certain extent, we probably don't. <laughs> like, there's probably yeah, I mean, look at these people wrong debating dog headed people back in the day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who knows what else we're, we're just wrong about today. Yeah, yeah. But getting back to caddies, and I think we're going to probably at this point break this episode up into two episodes. Yeah, maybe we'll finish with caddies, and then we'll do a second episode for the other cities. But also in, in caddies, I saw they've got a few castles. I mean, they're not massive castles. They're not super impressive ones. But I saw Castillo de Santa Catalina, which is pretty cool. It's kind of like your old-time, almost like pirate-type fort where it's got – it's almost like a star, if that makes sense with some like edges pointing out with cannons looking out onto the harbor. Caddy's has some incredible parks too. It's got a really great Roman history or just, I mean, it's history in general, but a lot of Roman history museum with statues of Trajan and of Germanicus, which of course I took pictures next to. The one thing about Caddy's though, is that much of the original architecture in the Roman ruins in the city had been destroyed because of fires and raids by the English and Dutch. So it's, it's a lot of, I mean, I wouldn't call it modern architecture, but it's, it's not like if you walk around Rome where you see the Colosseum and the Pantheon and all these ancient, ancient buildings that have lasted. I mean, it does have some, like it has this beautiful Roman theater there actually built by Balbus by what's his full name lucius cornelius balbus he was the advisor and friend to julius caesar kind of the behind the scenes banker and fixer for a lot of things caesar wanted done and he was from spain balbus and he built this theater and apparently it was the largest roman or one of the largest roman theaters ever built in the world and they have it there in caddies uncovered and it's one of the few theaters ever mentioned by contemporary sources and that contemporary source being Cicero. Cicero talks about this theater in his letters. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the theater was closed when I was there, so I was not able to see it. It was closed because of coronavirus. 
So, you know, that's kind of the Russian roulette of traveling during coronavirus. Like, I'm, I'm just happy I can travel at all and, and see all this cool history. But sometimes you get places and, and a lot of things are closed. Cadiz also has a cathedral by the sea that's just unbelievably gorgeous and massive. You know, no pictures do justice for how big this cathedral is. I saw pictures before, but when I got there, I was like, wow, that's that's like nothing I've ever seen before. That was closed, too. So I wasn't able to get in there, but I have an excuse to go back now. Uh, it also has beautiful beaches there. It, it's all right on the coast. Like I said, it reminds people of Havana. And I was actually there for Christmas time, too. So I got to kind of on Christmas Day go around and see a lot of the different kind of just did some church hopping, you know, went in, sat down for like two minutes of mass to check out a church and then headed to the next one. So that was kind of cool too. And then one of the other thing that Caddy's has is this thing called the camera obscura. So Caddy's was a, it was a big port town, a big, it's right on the water, right on the coast. So it's a big trader and port town with a lot of ships, coming in and bringing goods in and, and sending them out. And so merchants that were well-to-do would build towers on top of their houses so that they could see out over the rest of the city and see to the coast. And that could be a huge difference. If you can spot the ship first and see, hey, that's coming in with a shipment of rugs, I better sell my rugs for whatever I can get them for now. Otherwise, they're going to dip in price once this ship comes in, into the harbor. You know That could give you quite a leg up. So at one point in Caddy's history, there was tons of these towers all around the city, and there's still quite a few left. And the ta- the tallest of them is called Torre Tarifa, and it's got this thing in it today called a camera obscura. And basically, it just takes in light from above and reflects it through, I don't know if it's a series of mirrors or a magnifying glass, but it projects an, a live image onto this white bowl basically in the center of a dark room. And then by cranking different levers and such, they can rotate this camera obscura around the city and zoom in on random things. And so once you're in here, I mean, they zoomed in on some lady like doing her laundry out on her rooftop in caddies. And so (laughs) it was at that point that I realized like, Oh my God, you're never not being watched in today's world. Right. But it, it's fascinating because it's not a TV. It's it's not a camera sending an image to a TV screen that you're watching. It's literally just reflected light projected down to, into a dark room onto a white bowl-shaped canvas that projects this live, like, H, a hyper HD image. It, it's very unique. Really, huh? Yeah, I'm having a tough time exactly picturing it, but that sounds like... I mean, I, I've heard of such things, you know, where just through, you know, seemingly uh, mundane objects, you can create some kind of optical uh, image or whatever. But, but yeah, it's pretty. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. It is wild, and I kept reading about it beforehand and and trying to get an explanation on what it is, and I, I nothing did any justice. Like I, I couldn't understand. Even when I was waiting in line to go see it, I'm like, what am I seeing? I don't understand this. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got it, in there and saw it that I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so it was really that high definition. Like, uh, how'd they zoom in and out? I don't, I guess I have no idea. They would like crank a lever and suddenly would zoom in on some lady doing her laundry. And they would ask you, well, wh- what do you want to see next? And they would, they would crank it around and zoom in on this or zoom in on that. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. So 
did they have this back then or is this is something new that they created? No, that's, that's, that's where I was confused too. I thought they had it back then when I was going to see it, but then I found out it, it's more of a recent thing. And there are a few of them, them okay. around the world. There was one in Washington and Seattle. I think there's a few different ones around the world of these camera obscuras. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like, like I said, a, a lot of the architecture in caddies w- was burned down by different earthquakes and fires. And there was a huge sea raid and an Anglo Dutch sea raid that I think the British were mainly to blame for this. The Dutch wanted to leave. They basically, they, they held the city hostage. And this was a kind of the main treasure port of the Spanish fleet at the time. And they wanted a certain amount of money to give it back to the Spanish. The Spanish said, no, we're not going to pay it. So the Dutch just wanted to leave and say, oh, whatever. And the British said, no, there should be basically a penalty for them refusing to pay. And so they burned down majority of the city. So that's, you know, who we have to thank for a lot of the, the history not being there anymore. There's also a big raid by Sir Francis Drake, Brandon's favorite. Yeah, the sea dog. Yeah, the old sea dog. Although I don't think he, he burned some things, but I don't think he burned as much the city as the, as the later raid did. You never get remembered well for burning a city down. Well, yeah, it's an enemy city. Yeah, definitely not. I don't think many people get remembered for burning cities. Never looked that kindly by history. Yeah. But uh, let's wrap up this episode there, and maybe we'll put these both, both these episodes out at the same time and just break into separate chunks, or, or maybe we'll release them a week apart. I don't, I don't know exactly what. But let's end this episode here now with uh, caddies, and then we'll tell you about Malaga and Granada and Sevilla or Seville, as we know it in English, in the next episode. So thank you very much for listening. We appreciate the support, as always. And we'll see you soon in next episode. See you next episode.